What if I told you there was an industry that hasn't seen an increase in productivity since the 70s? Or that this same industry has 75% of its projects come in over budget and 77% of its projects are late, 70 days late on average. So that's only a third of its projects are on time and only about a quarter within budget and productivity has continued to decline. You might be surprised to hear the industry that I'm talking about is one that touches all of us, the commercial construction industry. I'm your host, Meredith Campbell, and our guest today is Rex Miller. Rex has spent the better part of two decades researching this very problem. Now, before we dive in with Rex and learn about his research and what it revealed about what made the best project so great and how we can innovate this industry that we love so much, here's Dan Cum of Blue Scope Buildings North America, today's episode sponsor and continuing education provider. After listening to today's episode, you'll be able to first, examine a shift in how project teams are structured, second, discover how a trust-based team is formed, third, identify the benefits of off-site construction, and fourth, predict what the new role of the architect is. You'll hear from Dan again later in the episode with instructions on how to obtain credit for listening. Today's episode is approved for continuing education credit through AIA. My background starts a few decades ago in 1978, where I was a project manager for AT&T, and I've been in the industry ever since wearing different hats. One is on the project management side, another on the contract furniture side, then on the subcontractor side. Then I started trying to address problems that the industry was stuck around and developed a process called the MindShift process and led cohorts of anywhere from 40 to 150 people over a two-year period of time, and it turned into five different books dealing with workplace engagement, with health and well-being, with improving project delivery to become more trust-based and collaborative, to educational engagement, and then to mental health and education. So it's been a variety of things with one common thread. It's how humans perform in complex systems. I want to talk about one of those books that was the spin out from these cohorts and this research that you did. The book called The Commercial Real Estate Revolution. It's a award-winning yeah. book. And it's really this roadmap, like you said, to fix some of the things that were and are broken in the building industry. And so you brought together, I saw in the book, more than 50 individuals. I know there were architects involved. Even the AIA was involved in some of your research and some of the processes that you worked through. One of the things that you say is that conventional construction has three components that live in constant conflict, cost, quality, and schedule, and that you can pick two, but you can't have all three. <laughs> so let's talk about the typical way that commercial projects get built today, which is largely the design-bid-build model. And you say in the book that design-bid-build model is dead or isn't the optimal way to do things. What is it about that model that just really is in conflict with innovation? The design-bid-build model was developed somewhere in the 1950s. And you can imagine back then that there was time. Projects weren't as fast. They weren't as complex I can remember where we didn't even have air conditioning in our house growing up during that time. A lot of contractors are what we call self-performers back then. So it was just a simple time. 
So now we've moved into this age of complexity. So we built a system that's linear and it's a handoff. It's called a waterfall process. We begin with the owner who brings the architect in, who then bids for contractors and then the subcontractors come in. That's a simplified version. The challenge is, is that 80% of the cost and 80% of the knowledge are in all of the subtrades. They come in after all the major decisions are made. There's something called the McClamey curve. This was Patrick McClamey, who was the CEO of HOK. And what he showed is that all of this knowledge and decision-making needs to be brought into the front end. If you look at all of the contracts and all the staging of where the cash flows, it works against that. So what we're up against are many structural, traditional ways of doing things that we have to bypass traditional ways of procurement, phasing of how we pay architects. All of these things have to be shifted. So there's huge resistance in the process of doing that. At the time of the book, 85% of projects were designed and built. Then there's a process called design build where the architect and the contractors are basically one entity. And that has its disadvantages and advantages. And then there was a process being developed in the 1980s called integrated project delivery, which did change the whole structure and had a unique kind of contract called an IFOA. IFOA stands for integrated form of agreement. And it was a different kind of contract. It wasn't a punitive contract, which most of the contracts are based on. It is tying everybody's success together in a shared risk, shared reward environment. So to simplify it, we have to align purpose and the vision of the project that the owner has with the team. We have to align the business case the owner has. A lot of projects go wrong because the owner's business case is just a budget. There's not a real internal process of saying, this is what we're going to accomplish and here's the return on our investment if we do this. Then we need to align the incentives, the financial incentives. Then we need to align the design process, integrating it into BIM, using shared models, shared symbols. Then we have to integrate it with the delivery process. And a lot of people use lean. That's a huge cultural shift, huge structural shift. Now, we have outliers who've been doing that. And even the companies who are invest at doing this, what's called integrated project delivery, it's only pockets those contractors that really know how to do this and have that expertise. Most projects are still the traditional way. And at the time we wrote the book, we found that 70% of all projects come in late over budget. There's a new book that just came out called How Big Things Get Done. And it's more around mega projects, but over 90% of mega projects come in late and over budget. So it's just a huge mental shift. That's why we called the process and eventually my company mind shift. We know how to do these things, but it is a total aha uh -huh mind shift that has to take place. And a lot of it has to do with the trust side of the equation. I know a lot of what your work is now is around this mind shift target. And you provide these nine transforming keys 
And they're basically ways to lower costs, cut waste, and drive change in the AEC industry in general. So there's a few of these keys that I want to focus on. I want to start with number one, this trust-based team formation. You said that every aspect of commercial real estate is inherently risky. So minimizing risk is the primal instinct that runs through the entire industry. But how does a trust-based team look different from that traditional project team? In addition to the risk, the system is designed to be adversarial from the very beginning. And we all play the game where in order to win the business, we have to be low price. Some people say best value, but you only make that mistake once and going in best value, you're really targeting to be the low price. And then once you're awarded it, you've got to play a different game and you've got to recapture your profit. So when you're giving a price on what's called schematic level design, which is conceptual 20% detail, if you can win that, then it's going to come to the next stage, which is the design development. Those are the details. So in the first bid, I bid on a door, but now I know the door's walnut and it's got a certain handle. And I said, oh, that's a whole different pricing. Now the owner knows this, so they hire a third-party project manager and their job is to beat everybody down and to go into what we call value engineering, which is neither engineered or value-driven. It's all about reducing scope and cost. So changing all that, the first thing we have to do is bring the key parties together and align around what we're doing and why. The what and the why. We need to know what the owner is wanting to build, what they hope to accomplish from it. And we're given so little information in the traditional system that we're guessing at what it is we're trying to accomplish. The very first criteria for trust is that ability to get everything on the table, our concerns, our fears, and even our apprehensions about our capabilities. Then Patrick Lencioni calls it vulnerability-based trust. Google's Aristotle project and their work with Amy Ed Edmondson talks about psychological safety. And most projects are not psychologically safe. Everybody's holding their cards close to their chest. And if they can't perform or they're having challenges, they're not going to say anything. They just hope somebody else screws up before they do. So that early collaboration is a huge part of this, which kind of leads us to key number two. And you say that collaboration and trust may seem chaotic existing together, but the reality is that this is what creativity looks like in action, which I thought was such a brilliant way to say it. In the design bid build kind of project, the contractor isn't engaged until much further down the line. Typically, they're really actively getting engaged once they start bidding. But how does that early collaboration make a difference? I know you studied tons of projects to yeah. see what made some of the high-performing projects different than an average project. How have you seen other teams be successful when they do that early collaboration? I'll use the DPR Reston office as an example. They are a well-certified building and a well silver. Now, most people would say that's going to be a huge premium. They came in less than 1% over what it would have cost them to build it just traditionally. The way they did that is they didn't start with design. They started with solving the big problems. 
And in a well building, the biggest cost challenge is the mechanical and electrical and the plumbing, all the infrastructure side. What they did is they brought in those individuals before they started design and said, here's our constraints. How will we solve this problem? So they were able to find that there was some natural air they could bring in. They looked at some other criteria. And by bringing in and solving problems first, then design, they were able to come in at less than one half of 1% of what it would have cost traditionally. What typically happens is an architect will design something and then the mechanical and electrical and the plumbing folks will submit to that design. And then you just lose all the ability to be innovative once you have a design that you're responding to instead of looking at problems first and solving the problem. And one of the problems is the business case. If it's a hospital with 150 beds, I want to know how many patients are you going to serve? What's the turnaround on those patients? What kind of finishes do you want? What's the profitability going to be? And then assuming you're bringing in a contractor that has experience in these areas, they'll be able to tell you very quickly budget range should be in without ever looking at a design. The biggest thing that's left off in design bid build is we don't know what we're really building and why. We see a design and we might hear the owner's vision for it or their mission, which is, it's pretty generic stuff. But what I really want to know are the assumptions built in to what they want to do. What's the cost assumptions in here? What's the use case assumptions. And once you start doing the design part, then you're not in that question, curiosity, discovery mode anymore. You're just in the respond and bid to it. So you start doing these line item bidding. One of the things we learned that European companies do is they have a role called a quantity surveyor. Quantity surveyors, if you think of them, they're, an, they're a combination of an accountant an estimator, and a project manager. They come in on the very front end and they crunch all those numbers. The business case numbers, the return on investment, they look at what the cost should be ahead of time. There's two kinds of estimating that firms can do. They can do the line item estimating where you're handed a spec and you just do it just like we do at furniture or anything else. That's the traditional way I send it out to six drywallers. I tell them how many lineal feed. I give them the criteria and they give me their rule of thumb pricing. But there's also something called conceptual estimating. This is on the front end. This is what Sutter Health did, where they would bring suppliers in as teams, not as individuals, but they would tell the contractors, you bring your whole team in. And so they come in with their architect and all their subs together and they ask them, this is what we're trying to build based on what we've budgeted from a business case standpoint. Can we build it for that? Again, we're looking at business case, solving problems, cross-functional information early on. And then we've got really good confidence on what we can build and how much it will take. And the commitments are made very early in terms of guaranteeing that cost. Then there's an integrated project delivery. The assumption is it's going to be better than design, bid, build. We're going to bring it in 
because we are a unified team and we're aligning our processes, we're going to be less expensive than design, bid, build. So now that we've got the marketplace cost, we'll set what's called a target cost. And the target cost is below market level. And so the goal is that we hit this target cost. And if we do, there's a shared profit in there. And every project is different in how they share it. But we go over that target cost, then we share in the cost of that. And so the first level of sharing cost is in the contingency. Then the next level is in our profit. But we never cut, these contracts are made, so we don't take it at a loss. We might lose our profit. We might lose our contingency in there. But it's banding us together. So if I'm a concrete sub, and this, was a, this is a real story, where the mechanical electrical plumbing sub came in and told the team, this is at Vulnerability Beach Trust, I'm having trouble meeting the budget. We've had some setbacks and turnaround and making the schedule. They brought it to the table. Most would never bring it to the table and hope somebody else screws up first. It was an intense meeting where all the people are there because everybody's going to lose money if we don't solve this thing. And the person who was the most intense, we had a representative there, asked the client, the owner, who was that person? Was that another project manager? And he said, no, that was the concrete sub. This is a team effort and it's all interdependent. It's all got to work together. So we have to know the handoffs in everybody's area. And that concrete sub was really good at solving complex problems and stayed up all night looking at the solution. So again, it's a different kind of game we play when it's a team game as opposed to lots of separate individuals coming together and trying to cobble it together through force, pressure, and coercion. One of the other keys that you mentioned is offsite construction. And you said that it was so important, it represents the future of construction. Some of the benefits are 50 to 70% less waste, higher and more efficient quality or consistent quality because it's being largely built in a factory versus just being erected on site. So that's just a few of the benefits that you listed. But what is it about offsite that you think offers such a paradigm shift in the way we think about and build buildings? And remember, the book was written in 2007, and I'm a futurist by degree. My master's is strategic foresight. But here are some problems that it solves. One, it solves a huge environmental problem. There's so much waste in traditional construction. It's called shrinkage. Up to 15% of traditional construction is waste. It's just thrown away. The other thing it solves is that there's a huge labor shortage in the trades, it, it, and everybody suffers from it. And now you're moving from factory environment, quality control, you can scale. And so you've got those economies of scale that you can do. Also think of the rural areas and serving the rural communities where it's very hard and very expensive to get trades to come into those areas. So I think we're going to start seeing more fabrication in that area. The designs are getting better and better all the time. And it's a no-brainer. It's just where the industry has to go. One of the things about pre-engineered, prefab is that in the past, I think 
to your point, it's changing, but architects were skeptical about what that solution would look like. But you made a metaphor in the book that I think was such a smart way to think about it, that it's like a painter going from oil painting to watercolor painting and expecting to use the exact same technique and get the exact same outcome. What would you encourage the architecture and design audience to think about when they are considering offsite as a solution? Today, we've got so many more tools than we did in 2007. So you can understand that what offsite fabrication felt like and meant to an architect is limited creative design. Now, Frank Gehry has shown that you can do a lot with computer-aided manufacturing with Bilbao and the Disney, but it's even better than that now. It saves so much time. It's more accurate and it's more efficient and it's a new medium. Part of what architects need to understand is that their new medium of creativity is the team, not being that wizard in the back room where they come out with ta-da. Now their magic is orchestrating group dynamics and creativity in teams. And BIM environments are not just a place where you go and design something. It's a social environment. This new orchestration, it's like the collaboration is creativity that you mentioned in the book. So talking about technology being this enabler, CAD replaced physical blueprints and drafting. BIM allowed everyone to collaborate in one 3D digital model, which you predicted in Key 5, which was big BIM. At that time, I think it was less than 20% of firms that were actively using Revit. And now it's become very standardized in firms today. And as we look to what's next and the role of technology in enabling that productivity, generative AI is obviously getting a lot of attention. But I want to talk about that role of the human and the role of technology, because as much as technology will enable the human to do what they do, which is design to orchestrate these project teams, what is this new role of the human, of the architect, of the project team, and the role of tech going forward? The architect has always been tied to the artifact, the thing they create, the plans they build. And the next level of the architect is orchestrating the group. It's that social capital and that social dynamic and that social intelligence tapping into that. And if you think that design is a way of thinking with a certain set of tools, then that broadens your horizons as to thinking what design is. So we're still stuck. You know, most architects are still stuck wanting to design the thing, the artifact. IDEO 25 years ago started the whole process of design thinking where it was a process of solving complex problems with different stakeholders. I think the third level of that is to reframe the challenge and the problem that we're finding all together. I've got a friend and colleague, his name is Ray Lucchese. And an example of reframing the problem is that this credit union had a, had a capacity issue, overcrowded, long wait times. And so the credit union felt that they needed to expand the building, add more people, and then add parking. The architectural firm first wanted to understand, what do you do here? What is the flow? What they found is that if they just shift the days a bit and spread out 
the flows and take care of the bottlenecks. They didn't need to add a new building. So think of that from a sustainability standpoint. The most sustainable thing is to not build another building, but to find more value in the buildings and the things we've got. So no, they didn't get the fee for the for building a new building. But what they did, the margin they got for the time they spent was exponentially higher than anything they would have done just doing production drawings, doing a parking lot and all of that. Plus, it was more sustainable, saved the client millions of dollars. It was a win-win. That's the three levels. You build the thing, you build a social community of stakeholders that come up with a better solution. That was the CBRE approach when they built their headquarters. It was brilliant. And then the other one is you just find and reframe the problem altogether. You made the point, and it still continues today, that nearly every project is an entirely new cast of characters coming together every single time. And so a lot of what you do now is helping these teams figure out what each person does best, what their unique role is. You've even created a proprietary system for doing this. Talk to us a little bit about how you're helping teams that need to come together quickly really adapt so that these early collaborations can happen more effectively. I like to say I have two jobs. One is to help people learn how to play together in the sandbox and to provide adult supervision when they can't. But a lot of the conflict that happens in jobs, so this stemmed out of a lot of the conflict stuff we were doing, it boiled down to something very simple. Two people wired very differently, under stress, reacted, and then interpreted each other's actions in an adversarial way when all they were doing was just reacting out of their own unique nature. But that's the nature of almost 90% of all the conflict. So the first thing we do is you have to humanize people. It's harder for me to get upset with you if I knew where you went to school and what your favorite food was growing up and the holiday you like, and all of these things. I have a story template. In fact, I'm going to do this Wednesday with a construction team on a large government project. And we're going to spend time first getting to know our stories and then tying our stories to how we're wired and then looking at what our wiring looked like at its best and then looking at what happens when it gets under pressure And then setting up what we call some rules of engagement. Then when we do get under pressure, we know how to signal each other that, hey, this is not working before it escalates. Let's work this out. And we use a strengths assessment tool. And as you said, we have our own proprietary model. Last week, I was on a construction project that had fallen into high conflict. And one of the things we did, we helped people create a paragraph of what they look like at their best. It's called the genius paragraph. This is, when I'm at my best, this is what I look like. We had people read it, read their paragraphs out loud to each other. And then we asked people, where have you seen Meredith at her best? Which one of those traits, when you think of Meredith, stands out? And then we had them say, if you were going to give Meredith a nickname, what would it be? And when I asked people, how did you feel when people gave you those positive comments? Some said it felt awkward, but good. Some said, wow, it's humbling. 
And what we find is that we spend so much time focusing on what's wrong instead of what's strong that under pressure we tear each other apart because it's that survival fight or flight. Getting people the muscles and the knowledge and the skill ahead of time to know how to operate under pressure. If you were a sports team, you wouldn't just all get together and have a meeting, a kickoff meeting, and say, woohoo, we're going to win the championship and just go out and play. You'd go through a whole preseason of practicing and fumble drills and routes and coordination and all of that. We never do that on construction projects. And just think a construction project is a thousand times more complicated and complex and the stakes are higher than a football game, right? But you got to do it with a team that has good trust, is open, is willing to be transparent, play the game. You got to build the team to go into battle. Here's Dan to close out the episode and share instructions for obtaining continuing education credit. Blue Scope Buildings is the leader in steel solutions, empowering its construction partners to deliver exceptional outcomes in the belt environment. Through our portfolio of brands and strength of builder networks, we combine to provide unrivaled platform for customers looking for steel building systems. We have a long history as the leader in pre-engineered steel solutions and have added significant conventional steel capabilities, all of which support our ability to offer unique hybrid solutions they capture the best of both worlds. Built on a foundation of care for the communities we serve, our goal is to have a profound impact on people and place and to enhance the experience of all involved in the design and build process. To learn more about Blue Scope Buildings and its brands, or to hear about our current strides in the architecture and design community, visit bluescopebuildings.com. If you are interested in earning additional CEU credits by exploring metal buildings in architecture or design, visit our brand websites for Butler Manufacturing and Varco Pruden Buildings. Our brands administer AIA-approved CEU courses throughout the year and can get you connected with a builder network that best suits your needs. To obtain credit for listening, simply visit the show notes of this episode and click the link to take a short quiz. That's it. Thanks for listening and learning with us today. The Learning Objective is a Surround Podcast Network original production. Check out more shows from Surround at surroundpodcasts.com. This episode of The Learning Objective was produced and edited by Sandow Design Group. Special thanks to the podcast production team, Hannah Vitti, Wise Grisette, and Rachel Senator. <laughs>